Let's take our Bibles from Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, and we'll pick back up with verses 3 through 8. We, uh, we took just a one-week break from Romans last Sunday for Easter and uh, looked at 1 Peter's encouraging words about the resurrection, and so we'll be back this morning then in verses 3 through 8 of our study through the book of Romans. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. Let us use them. Prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith, or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. For more than a decade, the term skills gap has been used to describe what many believe to be a problem in the workforce. My guess is you've heard the term. It's that concern among employers that employees, especially those who are fresh into the workforce, that there is a gap, that there's some distance in between the education and or training they received and what the job itself would require of them. In fact, there's been no small amount of material written about this. There, there have been cr- congressional committees called, that's not a shocker, right? They have a committee for everything, but they have called committees to talk about this. To try and figure out, you know, what can we do to try and reduce this skills gap? Now, some material coming out here over the last few months suggests that maybe that's not as big of a gap as once was believed. Nonetheless, if you are an employer and you are looking for qualified employees, this might be a concern, right? Do I have out there a a pool of potential applicants from which to choose that will fit into the particular job I need done. And if you are a prospective employee, well, you're concerned, do I have on my resume the requisite skills required in order to do whatever job I would like to do? I think the concern is, again, that perhaps... There are instances where people are not qualified. They don't have the skill or the education or the experience needed to do a job that is asked of them. Now, you might wonder, what, so what does this have to do? Is, is, this, is this a jobs fair? All right, pastor, what are you doing? Do we need to whip out some papers so we can beef up our, uh, our resume? Well, that's not the, the purpose of this morning. I mean, if you need that help... I'm not your guy. All right, I don't know what to tell you. Okay, so if you need that help, 
Maybe I could ask for somebody else, and they could. That's not what we're doing this morning. Instead, I think that may be the way some people view the church. Say, Pastor, how so? What what do you mean? I, I think there may be those, and perhaps it's those sitting in the pew here today. For sure, there are those on this side of it that at times may feel this way about the church, that there could be this concern out there that the church does not possess the necessary talents or skills or abilities to meet the needs of the culture. In fact, some may suggest that 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 is fundamentally a problem. The church just isn't equipped to function effectively in the world as it is today. I've probably mentioned this more times uh, than one, perhaps more times than a dozen. I, I get material across my desk all the time that suggests any number of conferences or books or seminars or training opportunities I need to be engaged in so that I could be better at doing what I do as a pastor. Now, some of you may be thinking, wow, that'd be great. How can we get him to go to some of those? Yes, that'd be much appreciated. How do we get in on that? What they're, tell- what they're telling me, though, more often than not, what these resources are suggesting is that there- there's some kind of skill or talent or cultural adaptation I need to make in order for the church to be effective. Now, for those of you who've heard me preach more than a couple of times, for those of you who know me, you can guess probably where I'll go from there. If I were to ask you the question, do you think that I think the church in some way is inefficient to do what God has called it to do? Obviously, the answer is no. I would suggest that, in fact, there is no skills gap between God's mission and the church that God has crafted. That in fact, the biblical testimony again and again suggests to me that God has crafted and formed and knit together His people in such a way that they are efficient, efficiently uh, skilled and gifted to do what God has called the church to do. Again, there may be some folks who say, Pastor, I don't know. I think it would be helpful if maybe we had this kind of training, or if we had this kind of program, or if we only did this kind of an event, or if we only did this kind of method. I think there may be some who would say, and if only we got this kind of member with this kind of skill set, and parentheses, kind of a whisper, and this size of a bank account. I think then maybe we could really do something, right? The assumption being that somehow the church does not possess what it needs in order to function as God has called it. I would suggest that our text this morning says something very differently than that. And this is not the only one, but that in fact, as we get to the the end of Romans 12, 3 through 8, as we finish it up this morning, we find Paul describing a work of God in the church that says something just the opposite. That in fact, perhaps the issue is not that, you know, the culture just isn't interested anymore. Perhaps the problem isn't that there is liberalism or progressivism. 
perhaps the problem might be just good old-fashioned disobedience and complacency on the part of the members of the body of Christ. In fact, God has provided everything we need to function effectively. Are we, though, engaged in church, in other words, together, are we engaged in being that church and doing those things which God has created us for? So this morning we turn our attention once again to this text, verses 3 through 8, keeping in mind a bit of the context here. You know, Paul had opened up chapter 12 with this really profound but simple summation of what the gospel should be doing in my life. And, and to put it simply, what should the gospel be doing? I should be fully devoted to Christ, a living sacrifice, avoiding the corruption of the world, walking in obedience to the will of God, the good, perfect, and pleasing will of God. This, this is how the gospel should form and fashion me. This is what should be coming out of me as a believer. And then moving right from that, Paul's next set of teaching to more specifically look at what does it mean to be a fully devoted follower of Christ as he fleshes this out really in the rest of the book of Romans. Paul's first concern then is to turn his attention to believers, their relationship to God, how they view themselves in relation to God, and then how they view themselves in relation to one another. I think these verses are critical for the life of a church. I think as Paul admonished this church in Rome to make sure they're thinking correctly about themselves and about their relationship to to God and to the church, I think it gives us important instruction on what it looks like to be a fully devoted follower of Christ in relation to God and in relation to one another. And we've been looking at this text through what, what I think are Paul's three lenses through which we should view our discipleship. Three lenses through which we should view how we are living out the Christian life. Now, we've already looked at two of them. We think rightly when we view ourselves through the lens of God's grace. And so we noted there in verse 3, as Paul opens up and says, this is a paraphrase, you can go back and read it for yourself. We studied it already a few weeks ago. Where Paul, in essence, says, you need to make sure that you're thinking properly about yourself. And how can you think properly about yourself? Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Instead, recognize who you are in relation to what God has given to you, to this measure of faith. I I think it's significant then that what, what Paul begins by doing is reminding us that we are who we are, we are where we are, only because of the grace of God, and we're not going to re-preach that same message, but church, I cannot tell you how critical it is for the people of God that we view ourselves through the lens of what is God's sovereign grace in saving us. I think sometimes we get a little too comfortable with our salvation, and Paul wants to make sure that we don't think of ourselves more highly than we ought. We are not God's gift to the kingdom. By the way, guys on this side of the pulpit could probably hear this message far more than those on the other, all right? Because we often think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Did somebody say amen? Did I hear an amen? I thought I heard an amen there. Pretty sure I did, all right? Church can function just fine without me. And without you. 
In other words, Paul's beginning words here I think are significant. Don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought. It's not that we're not important. We are because God saved us. God's love for us is radical and extreme and profound. And that should say something to our own hearts and minds. We are of immense value to God. But that should also drive us to the reality of God's saving work. I am who I am only because of the grace of God. And so he wants us to view ourselves through that lens. Then also through the lens of God's people. So Paul then goes on to say, and part of how you think of yourself rightly, rather than thinking more highly than you ought, view yourself as a part of the church. And Paul gives us that great metaphor, that imagery there of the body. That the church is like a body. Many parts, but they all serve one function. There's diversity, but there is unity. Paul fleshes this out in much greater detail in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. What I find to be really significant, though, is the way he ends that in verse 5. And, we, and so we talked about then this, that, that, that it's important that we view ourselves in relation to other brothers and sisters in Christ, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. I don't know if we view ourselves like that when we step through the doors of a church. In fact, I think that's too often what we think. We're stepping through the doors of a building. We're stepping into an institution. An institution that's designed to produce a product for those who are then coming to consume said product. And that perhaps I am the CEO of the business providing you with the product. And if that product is not to your liking, you can just go find another product somewhere else. I think that's how we often think about these things, right? Of course, you know. We all know. That's absolutely foreign to the New Testament. There's no imagery like that. Instead, the body is not described as an institution, but an organism, right? Not even an organization, though I hope we're organized, okay? But not even just an organization, but but we are knit together. We, we are connected. We have one head. That is Christ. And, and all of us play a part. So we're members of one another. So just as your body, what matters to the hand matters to the foot, matters to the heart, matters to the eyes, matters to the ears. All these parts are intricately connected. So should we be as a church. And so I wonder, do we often think of church in these terms? That when we come together, are we thinking, I am here expressly to be a part of meeting the needs of someone else. I don't know if we think that way. I think we think, well, I hope I like Sunday school or the music or the sermon, and it's not that we want you to dislike any of those things. And all of those things should be a part of your growth in Christ-likeness. Yes, that is our responsibility. That's our ministry to you. But I wonder, do we think when we come together what, what, what am I going to do then to be a part of this body, to be a, a blessing then to the other members? Because we're individually members of one another. All right, let's go on to the last point. And that is we view ourselves through the lens of God's gifts. God's gifts. So, verses 6, 7, and 8, Paul ends this by describing how a part of this imagery of the body is that every part has its function. How do we function then? God, by His grace, gives believers gifts. These gifts are given at the moment of salvation. They are a result of the indwelling power of the Spirit. 
and they are designed by God to enable the church to function as God would have the church to function. So I want you to notice just a few ideas here then about gifts that I think Paul lays out for us. What's going to follow on the screen is not in your notes. I know, sorry, okay? In other words, if you you like to take notes and fill in stuff, there's not going to be any blanks to fill in. You're going to have to write out entire sentences, which is a lot of work on a Sunday morning, just minutes before lunch, recognizing that the word minutes is a relative term. All right, so let's consider... Three truths then about God's supply of spiritual gifts to the church. Number one, or letter A, gifts are given by God. Verse 6. You ready for this? This is profound. Where do I get that point from? Verse 6. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. So, so, so we, we recognize these gifts. How is it that, the, how is it that there, there is no skills gap here, Pastor? Why isn't that right? Why isn't that the way we should think about the church? Why, why, why shouldn't there be more skills and training that help us, you know, flesh out, fill out the church? And I'm not saying we can't use training and seminars and those things. They can all be well and good if focused in the right way. But God has designed His church to function along the lines of the giftedness of the people that are part of the body. In the same way that a hand does what a hand does, and a foot does what a foot does, and eyes do what eyes do, and ears do what ears do. In other words, each one has a function, and that function is critical to the well-being of the entirety of the body. God has gifted His body, believers. God has given them to us. Again, notice the emphasis here on grace. Kind of like the first point, God's given gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. Here's here's what this means. I don't get to Google a list of spiritual gifts, print it out like some kind of spiritual menu, and say, I'd like a little bit of that, and I'd like a little bit of that. Uh, You know, so I'd like, you know, I'd like to have some some leadership, maybe some teaching ability. Uh, I'd like to serve uh, maybe a little less mercy. All right, that's not my thing, but I'll take a little bit of it, okay? So almost as if it's an a la carte item, and I can say, I want this, this, and this. That is not how it works. God gives the gifts. And the language of grace there is similar then to the language of salvation itself. Just as God gave me salvation, I did not earn it. I didn't work for it. God didn't bestow it upon me because I jumped through whatever hoops or because God thought, you know, he'd be a really great addition. That's, God saved me simply by his own good and sovereign grace. That was it. Same way, that's how God gives gifts. They're given to us by God. They are given at the moment of salvation. Which, by the way, whole separate kind of sermon, but just so you know, given to you by God, by the Holy Spirit, who you get all of the moment you get saved. In other words, there's not some kind of second blessing that is required. So God, through the the, the work of salvation, not only makes me new, He gives me the Spirit as a seal. We just read that text in Ephesians chapter 1. And so through the work of salvation, I'm given, given the Spirit, along with the Spirit, then that means I am gifted. He's given then gifts. Expressions of His grace. By the word, the word gift and the word grace, same root word. Isn't that interesting? The same root word. It's almost like He's saying, so God having, uh, having then gifts differing according to the gift that is given, that is gifted to us. It's almost like you could interchange all of those words. This is all an act of God's grace. God has given it to me as, an, as a supernatural act, meaning 
as a result of salvation through His Spirit. I don't get to choose it. It's what God has done in me, and then what God can do through me. Let me say, I'm inclined to think that believers have more than one, and that perhaps that giftedness could rise up at certain periods in certain ways, and then other gifts rise up in other ways at other times in your life. In other words, there's nothing in the Bible that says God gives you one gift, that's your gift, you're locked in, so if you got, if you got saved at age 10, you've got one gift, and that's it for the rest of your life. That's all you get, and God's not going to help you do anything else. That's not what He means. I think, in fact, what He's saying is God all along the way ensures that His church has exactly what His church needs by giving of these gifts. So God gives the gifts. It is, it is His sovereign design uh, all up to His own desire to make His church as He sees fit. All right, number two. Gifts are then given by God in varying degrees. Pastor, where do you get that? Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. Now, let me tell you what this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that God has given some of you more grace that saves than He's given others. I know maybe you may think of yourself as somebody who needed more grace than others, all right? Or maybe you think of the person next to you as somebody who needs more grace than others. That's, that's not right. All of us need exactly the same amount of grace. Exactly the same amount. We do recognize that the work of salvation is such that we should constantly be reminded of the fact none of us were, were an easier save than anybody else. It's all equally miraculous that any of us in here are believers. Okay? But that's not the grace he's talking about here. Instead, when he uses the language of grace in this context, is specifically about the giving of gifts. And what he's saying is, God has given out these gifts in differing proportions. Some are better teachers than others. Some are better leaders than others. Some are better administrators. Some are better at serving. Some are better at mercy. Some are better at giving. In other words, I think there is a proportion to which God has given out His gifts. To, to what degree? How? Why? Why has He done it that way? I don't know. It's His church, not mine. But this is how He's, this is how he's arranged His church. He has ensured that His church has everything it needs in its day to function as God would have it to function. And so that means he's not only giving gifts, he's giving them out as he sees fit. This might be a hard one to swallow, right, for some folks? Some of us who are really into notions of fairness, you know who I'm talking to probably? You firstborns out there. You know who you are, right? Especially if you have one or more siblings, as a baby in the family, I know things were not fair. All right? I just know things were not fair. I had better parents by the time they got along, okay? Because they'd already worked out most of their bad stuff on the first two. All right, so when I came along, plus I was precious, but when I came along, then it was, it was an easier deal. So I understand my brother, my oldest brother, he'll exaggerate because he's a firstborn. So he'll exaggerate and tell you, you know, that I had it way easier than he did. I don't know about that, but I will say, I'm sure, I, <laughs> I had less 
curfew. I got more stuff. I got away with more. There is no doubt about it, all right? So sorry to the babies in the family. The secret is out. You and I know it. We've always known it. Your older siblings are right. Okay, yes, that is the way that it is. That disturbs our notions of fairness, though, right? The first one should get a dollar. The second one should get a dollar. The third one should get a dollar, right? That's how we think. Everything should be equally distributed. It's funny how we're capitalists until we're not, right? Okay? Some of you will get, some of you have to explain that at lunch to other people. All right. But that is not how God has worked. God has given it as He's seen fit. But pastor, why would, I mean, that doesn't really seem fair. It doesn't matter. <laughs> you weren't expecting to hear that, right? It doesn't, ma- it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because I was not a part of the initial team that crafted the church. I wasn't on that committee. I mean, there was a committee, all right? Three and one, okay? All right, there was Father, Son, and Spirit, all one, all, uh, you know, they're, they're His own being, yet all three, three and one. Be careful how much you explain that because you're, you'll strand a heresy one side or the other. I wasn't a part of that. God can make His church however He wants to, and that means differing gifts to differing degrees as He sees fit. Then there's a third principle here, and that is gifts are given by God, in varying degrees, to be used in the church. Maybe, maybe we should even say to be used among the church, with the church. Any way that would say it that would suggest, I am responsible for engaging with one another, not the organization, not the institution per se. In other words, it's not, well, pastor, I'd I'd use my gift if you did this program or that event or did this thing. That's that's not what we're talking about here. I should be engaged with the body functioning because that's that's what it does. I I mean, you you don't want your hand to wait on an invitation, right? You don't want your foot to say, well, I'm not an eye, so I'm not going to move, all right? Uh, Put an eyeball on my big toe, and then I'll go do it. I mean, we don't want our body to function that way, but as believers, we do. And so this creates a really ugly body of Christ sometimes. Instead, I think what what He expects of us is that we would be engaged in our gifts. So notice how He then goes on to flesh that out. Verse 6, so having gifts differing according to the grace that's given to us, let us use them. If prophecy... Let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. By the way, prophecy uh, is a tricky one. And uh, just so you know, just as I just kind of tipped my hand on what I believe about the Holy Spirit, we are given all of the Holy Spirit the moment we are saved. In other words, the act of salvation is being baptized into the Spirit. These are not separate acts. Uh, I am also what is called a cessationist. You think, Pastor, I didn't come here for that. All right. But what I, mean by, what I mean by that is I think there are certain miraculous sign gifts of the New Testament that f- fulfilled their task during the time of the New Testament. These are not operating gifts then today. Prophecy, however, is a different one. Prophecy was used in the time of the New Testament before there was the New Testament in order to give divine revelation from God to the church. Now, I do think there are those who then can speak prophetically today in that the primary function of a prophet is to speak forth the Word of God. So how would we do that today in relation then to Scripture? 
All right, so, so Paul begins by saying, all right, so here's what you need to be doing. You need to be using your gifts. If your gift is being able to boldly proclaim the word of God, then do so in proportion to the way that gift has been given to you. He goes on, or ministry. Let us use it in our ministering, or he who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation. You might hear that and wonder, what does he mean by exhortation? The exhorter is the person who comes alongside... You could call it forceful encouragement. The exhorter is one who will come alongside and will, will encourage you to live faithfully and obediently, in particular when it seems like you're not. This may be an underappreciated gift, all right? Uh, and I'll go ahead and tell you, maybe not everyone who thinks they have this gift actually has this gift, all right? But the exhorter is the one who can come along and encourage you along in your growth in Christ-likeness. So, if your gift is exhorting, then exhort. If, if it's giving, then give with liberality. It's about the only time you'll hear this guy encourage you to be liberal, right? Let it, let it fly, okay? Be as progressive and liberal as you want when it comes to your giving. Just Okay? So if that's it, then so be it. If it's leadership, then lead with diligence. And if it's showing mercy, and isn't this interesting... I find this to be, by the way, one of the most interesting ones, that he concludes by saying, if your gift is to show mercy, you would expect, based on everything else he said, to say, and do it mercifully, right? But that's not what he says. <laughs> do it cheerfully. Do it cheerfully. I think that I find that to be profound, especially given the fact that often we might engage in mercy begrudgingly, out of obligation, right? With a... Uh, you know, right? You know that sound, right? Everybody knows that sound? What does that mean? Somebody's asked you to do something and you don't want to do it. That's exactly what it means. That's not cheerful, right? To go, oh, okay, you've heard it. Parents, you've heard it. Parents, you've done it, all right? So we all understand the language here. There's no Greek word for it, but that's what it is, okay? Now, in all of this, I think there's, there's, an important, there's some important ideas to, to note one, when Paul gives out this list, this is not an exhaustive list. In fact, the New Testament, it does not intend to give an exhaustive list of gifts. You can find another list that some of it, some of it overlaps, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You can find some more references to gifts in 1 Peter. And even if you put all those together, it's not like, all right, this is it. Instead, I think these are categories. These are ways in which God gifts, equips, enables the, the members of the church to function in a way that the church will function effectively, that the church can fulfill then God's mission, God's expectation for it. And I know somebody then may hear this and think, all right, pastor, is this the time that then you pass out the spiritual gifts inventory test? All right? How many of you have taken the spiritual gifts inventory test? Well, that was a horrible... No, I'm just kidding. All right, I was saying if you'd raise your hand and I could make fun of you. No, I've done it. I've given them out, okay? Uh, and they can be of some help, but maybe not. If you've ever taken like a personality test, how do you answer it? You answer it with your bias, right? You answer it in a way that will express whatever personality you wish you had. So I don't find those necessarily helpful. Maybe gifts the same way. Instead, I think it is a matter of prayer... Time in the Word, in other words, you're doing those things which form your, your spiritual uh, self that make you like Christ, 
you're in fellowship with God's people, and you look for ways to serve. In, in the most general sense, whatever that may be, you may be given an opportunity to teach. You may be given an opportunity to lead a small group. You may be asked to come alongside another believer who's maybe less mature. Maybe you have an opportunity then to build a relationship with somebody. In other words, in in these kinds of contexts, you get to see what you think you contribute then to the larger body. Paul's intent, I think, is just to lay out a variety of categories, ways in which we can serve. In fact, I think you can summarize these with two basic kinds. Serving-style gifts and speaking-style gifts. That's not my own, by the way. You'll find those kind of categories in in a lot of stuff that you read about spiritual gifts. In other words, there are those like preaching, teaching, exhorting. Uh, These are those who have the ability to proclaim the message of the gospel, right? They, They can rightly handle the word, and that may be in a group setting, maybe in a large group setting. It may be one-on-one, so somebody with a gift of counseling would really have a gift of teaching, I would argue. So there'd be those with those gifts. Then there are those who have the serving gifts, those who really make ministry real, right? Those who can administrate, those who can serve, those who engage in ministry, those who give because ministry is not free, all right? These, these kinds of qualities, you can break them down in between these two. Those, those who can function in, in that kind of teaching way, bringing the Word to bear, and those who can engage in the nuts and bolts of ministry, church life. So in looking at all this, I think we prayerfully then should consider what is then going to be our role in the life of the church, because we are members individually and of one another. I think the primary place you should be engaged in ministry should be in the context of your church meaning other brothers and sisters in Christ, you have aligned yourself with. I I think it's critical that we do this faithfully and effectively. God has designed His church to work in a very specific kind of way. You and I have been gifted by God in order to serve His church. So the question is, are we doing this? Are we effectively serving the body through our gifts? Because this brings us then all the way back to how I started. I think the church has everything it needs to function in the moment as God would have it to function. Now, don't misunderstand that. That doesn't mean if you're here and you're visiting, don't think, oh, well, Tabernacle's got all it needs. Okay, we'll move on. That is not what I mean, all right? That is not what I mean. What what I do mean, though, if God then brings you as a visitor looking for a home church, if God brings you to be a part of our church family, that means there is a ministry to which God expects the church to engage or you to be involved in. and So you just become part then of God forming and fashioning that body of Christ. What, what I do mean to say is not that God doesn't add those to us who bring great value and ministry ability. What I mean to say is at any given moment in the life of the church, God is effectively gifting us so that we can do what He's called us to do. In other words, we don't just sit around and wait. No, we're going to have to wait till we get this program going or this method started or before we get this group started or before we do this event. As soon as we do that, then we'll be ready to roll. 
or we need to get this many members, or we need this much money. In other words, these aren't the things that determine whether or not the church can function. Do you think God, if He's responsible for saving, and if He's responsible for gifting, do you think He would produce a body that then is ineffective at doing that work? Of course not. Of course not. Maybe you've heard that old preacher joke. Maybe you've heard this right before an offering, especially like a special love offering. Have you ever heard this? Pastor stands up and he tells everybody, Good news! We've got all the money we need to do our new building program. Have you heard this before? And everybody goes, Woo! Yeah! Amen! But there's only one problem. It's all still in your pockets, right? So, so I mean, it's a, you know, it's a corny joke. Preachers, there's some preachers among us who've probably used it, all right? So I've worked it in there for, for you guys. So, that, but I think this image is similar. I think this is, this is the thing. We, listen, Tabernacle, and I know, again, I know we've got visitors, and, and, and maybe even those who are still considering joining. And, and so I understand all of that, but, but, but I'm encouraging us, as, as the body that goes by the name of Tabernacle, that gathers in this place, We recognize God has saved us and equipped us and we can fulfill God's design for us in a way that brings Him the greatest glory. And I'll tell you, church, that's all I want to do. That's all I want to do. And I I pray that we would then give ourselves to just that. That we would give ourselves to to serving the body of Christ, the body into which He has placed us, according to the gifts that He's given to us, so that we might be a part of what God wants to do in us and through us. So so let let me ask you first, believer, if you're here today and you'd say, yes, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. I've trusted in, in His death on the cross, His resurrection, I've been forgiven by Him and Him alone. Are are you serving your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you serving the body? And and if you'd say no, or I'm not really sure, I would encourage you then, that that would then be the appropriate response, to say, I want to be a part of the body as God has designed me to be a part of the body. Maybe you'd want to come here and pray. Maybe you want me to pray with you. Pray where you are. as, As we'll sing together a song about fully yielding our lives, telling in essence the Lord, take my life, is what we're going to be singing. Am I I fully devoted and yielded to Him, functioning as He's designed me to function? Of course, to some who may be here today, I would appeal to you because you're not a believer in Christ. And if that's true of you, if you've never trusted in Christ as Savior, then that's where it begins. You're not a part of the body of Christ. You're outside of the body of Christ the good news is, is by virtue of the gospel, by virtue of Christ crucified, resurrected, the good news that in Him there is life and the forgiveness of sins, you can be then saved, forgiven, and become a part of the body of Christ. If you would repent of your sin, if you confess your faith in Christ and Christ alone, you can be saved today. I'll be down front if you'd want to know more about that. After the service, I'll be right down front as well. If you'd like to talk more uh, at the end of the service, we can do that as well. How would then you respond to the good news of God's Word? Let's stand and I'll pray. And after I pray, then we will sing together. Father God, we thank you again for the gathering of your people. We thank you for your Word. We thank you for the way that you have knit your body together, the way you have crafted 
the body of Christ. We thank you, God, that we've been gifted so that we might serve, so that we might serve one another and for the sake of one another. Father, that we would then give ourselves to that divine purpose, that we would then yield fully to you and that we would be fully devoted followers of Christ, functioning as you've designed us to be. So God, we pray that you continue by your Spirit to bring your Word to bear on our lives, and that we would respond as you would have us to, and all for your glory. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.